Join us for this dialogue with Roshi Diane Hamilton, the Zen teacher and award-winning mediator and author, as we explore the simple essence of Zen, a way of living without reference to past or future. And we cover and explore topics such as waking up to our true nature, the challenge of grief and practices that can help with a healing rift between female and male, the role of substances such as ayahuasca and peyote, and the ever more subtle process of purification, of clearing our old wounds and difficulties. Allow yourself to be reminded how simple things can get if you let them, and how, as Diane says, we're all just growing up together. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit, life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. Well, welcome, welcome everyone. My name is John Dupuy and this is Roger Walsh and Diane Musho Hamilton. And this is the Deep Transformation podcast. And we were talking a bit before turning the recordings on, and it's already gotten deep. So my hope is that we'll stay in that vein. Yeah, what can I say? Let me see a little bit about you, Diane. Diane Hamilton. We were trying to, I was trying to figure out what your official title is. Are you a Roshi? Or, okay. Well, yes, I am now. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Diane has been one of the leading lights in our integral emergence and i've probably met you gosh it's been 20 years ago it was a long time ago when i first started going getting to, close getting yeah, close to boulder and she's and she's remarkable and her house and beautiful zen temple down in southern utah is about two miles as a crow flies from our home and i go to meditate a lot a beautiful beautiful place God, you've been involved in so many things. Let's pretend that people don't know who you are. So this is one of my questions when I'm on a long plane flight. I'll say to the person next to me, who are you and what do you do? And usually they either we start this great conversation or they ask to get seated someplace else. But let's, <laughs> let's try that one. So, Diane, who are you and what do you do? Well, I can't help but think, and Roger will share this with me, the the Zen story about Emperor Wu, who asked Bodhidharma, who are you? Bodhidharma says, I don't know. <laughs> so on one level, who knows? I can tell the story, though, that basically I'm, you know, I grew up in the Utah in the West Desert. I grew up riding horses and spending a lot of time in nature and had a kind of typical childhood for a girl from my era. And then when I was 17 years old, I lost seven friends in a really short period of time. Four were died in a plane. And then three other friends died subsequent to that within a very short period of time. And that just reoriented me in the world from questions of relative truth to questions of what does it mean to be human in the face of death. So I think I just kind of veered from, you know, your typical engagements into philosophy and eventually into spiritual practice. I was raised in the Mormon church, but my family was what you might call Jack Mormons. We were more cultural. Mormons than, than really religious. And I somehow was introduced to the teachings of Chogyam Trungpa. And so I went to Naropa Institute very shortly 
thereafter and started to study the Buddha Dharma when I was about 23 years old. And so I am both a meditator and then my work, I became a mediator. I did, I, I was trained in conflict resolution and let, you know, it dawned on me kind of 20 years later that it's really the same activity mm-hmm. that mediation and meditation are, are about discovering the, either the commonality or the unity below our experience or within our experience. So I'm, I'm a meditator and a mediator and I'm also an integralist. I met both of you through our connections with Ken Wilber in about 2004. And that has been one of the richest and most fulfilling things that I've done is be engaged with Ken's work and with all the people who are like-minded in that way. And it just helped me be able to, to kind of, it gave me a map for understanding my own experience, you might say. So those are the main things I'm engaged with. And I would say at this point, aging is kind of a big theme. <laughs> I'm 62 and I notice it. So. Oh, you're so young. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> totally. I don't hear it. <laughs> yeah. Don't tell me about it. So, uh, yeah. And Diane, a couple of other things about you are, as John briefly mentioned, uh, a Zen Roshi, that is a respected teacher in the Zen lineage, you. but you're also very rare in that you also are a transmitted teacher for the, what's called the big mind process, uh, mm-hmm. A remarkable process for giving a taste of some very profound states and experiences mm-hmm. usually take many years of practice so mm-hmm. perhaps at some stage we'll get into, into that so you hold both these lineages and you also deep spiritual practice contemplative teaching and as you said you also embrace and use the integral Ken Wilber's integral framework the largest conceptual map we have in our time so you bring both depth and this extraordinary scope together in uh, what feels like a really wonderful and much needed marriage of depth and breadth and height. So, so deep value. And I, I'm moved by knowing who you are and the depth of your commitment to contemplation and service and which I would like to think I share. And I know John does that. I would just like to take a moment to, as we do in Buddhism to take a moment to set the context and intention for our time together. And my my hope, my prayer would be that our conversation and exploration and enjoyment and play together would be a means for our learning and growing and healing and awakening that we know, that this conversation and our lives may be means for the welfare and awakening of all and the healing of our deeply, deeply, deeply troubled planet. Hmm. Maybe so, yeah. Maybe so, indeed. So, you and I have had, I know when, when I go to a, uh, an integral conference, I, the <laughs> we always team I, up. After, <laughs> I, one of my first priorities is to find you and make sure we have a conversation. So, yeah. now we get to do, do it without having to travel around the world and we get to do it in a way which hopefully may be uh, something we can share with people. So, there's so many things we could we could touch into, and I would love to at some stage like to touch into the big mind process. But there, is there any way you any way you'd like to start? Well, I think I'd like to start also just by appreciating the context that we all know each other in, because it, we're all meditators, and John has a more Christian orientation to his meditation practice, and you and I are both trained Buddhists. We have that in common, and we also are very deeply engaged and informed by Ken's work. And so our history together and the relationships we have, the friendliness, the sense of one another, the continuity over time 
is really the the context in which our conversation is happening. And I just appreciate what you said, Roger, about opening it up to others and hoping that um, our time together is going to be enjoyable for us, I know, and I hope it benefits others as well. Hopefully we'll be able to light on some things that during the times that we're in, which seem quite, I guess, turbulent is a good word. There's a lot of change afoot. There's uncertainty and there's also potentially peril. And for people who've already lost people or been affected, like my family has been by COVID, there's already a tremendous amount of disruption and loss, really, for so many people. I think how many people have died? 650,000 or something. I think that's accurate, yeah, in, yeah, in the United States. States. In the U.S., yeah. Several million worldwide, yes. Yeah. So it's a provocative time for us, you know, and, and for me, I think it, uh, I'm, I'm more deeply appreciative of our practice precisely because when times become uncertain, the stability and the reference point of practice makes such a big difference. Yeah, and that speaks to one of the hopes that John and I have in doing this podcast. There's no shortage of podcasts, and there's some wonderful material out there, mm-hmm. some, some some deep spiritual practice, there's, of course, a lot of religion, there's discussion about the issues of our time. But what we felt has been lacking is an integration of those, a, a deeply spiritually, contemplatively informed discussions about about the issues of our time. And so, so it was our hope to be able to dialogue with people like you and bring a, a contemplative depth to these issues, which often get treated either economically, politically, militarily, uh, socio, socially, etc., all of which are important. Yeah. But the, I think we have all found in our lives that that having a contemplative practice adds some space, some clarity, some depth, and and some breadth to the vision that we allows that allows us to bring to a consideration of issues. And it just feels like those qualities are deeply needed. So so it gives gives us me a chance to say a little about what we we hope to do here in these conversations. Let's see. Again, so many places we we could go. And you've just done your book, Compassionate mm-hmm. Conversations: How to Speak and Listen from the Heart. So there's that. And what is it now that kind of is calling you? What's on your edge at the moment? Well, in our training, Ken has provided some really important distinctions around this, this idea of transformation and made some really, you know, really helped us to clarify our thinking. So we talk in our circles, of course, about being and this, the, you know, deep ground of being that's ungraspable and can't be commodified and is innate to all of us and is all of who we are. But unless we recognize it and wake up to it, it's like it's a, we use that uh, metaphor of the, the analogy of a jewel being sewn into your jacket pocket that you don't know is there. And so Ken has defined that waking up to our true nature as waking up. And he's distinguished it from growing up or from the other ways in which we can grow and evolve. So, so being itself is, is unconditioned and simply requires, I say simply requires recognition. Whereas growing up, you know, we have to actually advance our skill set. So for instance, in the domain of emotion, of relationship, you know, the, those qualities that in some of the research we know and end up correlating really highly to people's happiness 
how, how well we can experience and transmute our emotion, how we're able to communicate about them, bring them into relationship, how our relationships become sort of the testing ground for how we actually deal with, with the world at large, you know? So we call that growing up in our circles. And I've, I've really been kind of balancing in a certain way in my own practice and in with my students waking up and growing up. So I put a lot of emphasis on people developing their ability to work with emotion and develop their communication skills and be in relationship in more authentic and trusting ways. But right now, I think for me, all eyes for me are on waking up in the sense that the urgency in the world right now, I feel that, you know, we need to wake up to some fundamental way in which we're already the same, particularly in light of all the polarization and political stress that we're experiencing. I just feel like I want to both experience and and transmit and teach this deeper unity, this unity potential that we have. It's already there, but we do have to practice to realize it. So right now I'm feeling that more. Yeah. Yeah. I I was going to say, is this a new emphasis? in your teaching because you've been a teacher for a long time as you feel that's well what i noticed i noticed that that even even the book that i wrote i wrote compassionate conversations with my co-authors gabe wilson and kimberly Lowe. she's she's a brit but she's asian and he's biracial he's african-american and his mother's brazilian she's she's white and we wrote it was published i think actually right before the george floyd issue and it it's it concerns power and privilege and you know issues related to social justice but it it it, it i wouldn't say that it's quite as you know, i want to i don't know how i want to frame this it's not quite as ideological as the anti-racism uh work but it is helping people navigate that territory and for whatever reason i'm not getting the bids for me to share that dimension of my work and i seem to be getting more people more energy around the waking up part. So the shift is there, but I think, I feel like it's in a certain way what's being asked of me right now. It's kind of changed. You know? well, well, yes, and there's no shortage of people engaged in social action of one kind or another at this stage. There, there is a rarity still of people doing real depth work and, and teaching. So I'm not surprised that there are more people coming to you with that. Particularly since the the book Compassionate Conversations makes that very clear. There's a well, it is compassionate. It's not strident. It's not ideological. It's putting the relationship first. How do we acknowledge our common humanity and and relate common to that? And that's a beautiful perspective, as opposed to the emphasis primarily on on injustice and and difference. So I think that that is clearly your contribution. I'd like to just step back a moment because you said a lot <laughs> in a very Did short I? time, which <laughs> I'm used to, but I want to make sure I, I want to make sure some of your points don't get lost because you okay. drew a, a crucial distinction between growing up and waking up, and and you also alluded to the fact that, that is one of Ken Wilber's contributions. So just to Give a context on that. Um, what Ken has pointed out is that the great religions gave us roadmaps for waking up, for recognizing our true nature or deepest being or soul or Atman or, or Buddha nature, any number of na- names. But it's only in the last century that Western psychology has recognized that there are actual developmental stages we go through. And whereas states we can recognize in our direct experience, 
stages are more like I think of them as the operating, the mental operating yeah. system. So by their very nature, they are what we look through rather than look, rather than what we look at. And so it's very hard to recognize stages as we go through them, but we certainly we get a feel for where people are. But they're two quite distinct processes. One yeah. can wake up without being very psychologically mature, and one can be psychologically mature and yet not not particularly awake at all. So that's a new distinction and a very important one for our time, yeah. one which the great religions are going to have to come to terms with and one which our society needs desperately to draw on both both kinds of growth. How, how do you, could you add to that a little bit, John? How do you see that? Because it, it's true. I actually, actually didn't really present states and stages properly. I was thinking more about growing up in terms of emotional maturation and not quite in terms of stage development, but, but yeah, well, what it, And that would be an interesting distinction itself, but John, mm-hmm. but please, John. So the question is, again. Yeah, well, we're making this distinction between waking up and growing up and, yeah. um, and Roger was just helpful in terms of clarifying that we're, we're actually talking about states and stages when we talk about waking up and growing. Well, I, I guess in kind of the Western psychology, we were we were dealing with the ego, the personal self, and all its foibles and the unconscious and all these things. It's all well and good. And in the East, plus the esoteric Christian and definitely Jewish uh, traditions had the had the waking up in, in different languages and different traditions. But we have found that if you don't put both together, you <laughs> have issues. You know, if, if you can be completely processed <laughs> psychologically and you'll be like a dog chasing your tail, uh, you can be woke up. Uh, I should say wake up. I didn't mean to use that. That means something else in today's context. But you can be awake but haven't done your ego work. Mm-hmm. And it's a massive disaster for your own karma and for the people you teach. And so I think it's become really apparent in our integral world in the last few years. And and as teachers started emerging on the scene, that it was a problem if you didn't do both. And that's why it's really, it's really remarkable. I I was just, when you guys were talking, I'm just happy I've done my job. I can sit here and shut up now because I have Roger (laughs) and Diane talking that I have two teachers who, I've known for years now and Roger more closely over the last several years that I do respect, you know, and you, you know, had your struggles and your, the things that have happened, but both of you were kind of don't miss people when we went to different conferences and stuff. And from the very early part of the integral movement, they were two people that are really, besides Ken, that uses touchstones. You know, how do you do that? And, you know, you're, you're a Zen teacher, but the Zen traditionally didn't do a lot with the ego besides that it was an illusion. But you've gone a lot further than that, and you do a lot of depth psychology in, in your work, Diane. So you, I don't know, you've been pretty much pioneering this, your version of Zen, I would say. Or, or am I wrong, or do you feel that you're, you know, you're supported by the rest of the community and, and what you're doing as you brought together this, this integral and inclusive brand of this ancient tradition? <laughs> that question about, you know, how do we practice? How are we practicing? Um, I would say that the heart of, of Zen, I, th- I think, Roger, you may have said this to me, and, and I don't know who Ken's quoting when he says that someone referred to Tibetan Buddhism as the co- complete Buddhism and Zen as the essential Buddhism. Is that right? Yes. 
and and by the essential Buddhism, I think the point that you're making is is right, John, is that it just points you again and again and again to you could say the utterly coherent and free of separation kind of reality. And what is ego? Ego is just functioning separation, you know, in the sense that we have the concept of self-identity and that concept by its very nature divides us from the rest of our experience. And at no point are we separate. You know, it just isn't, it isn't the case. It's a, it's an idea that we have. But in fact, from breathing the same oxygen in this moment to our listening and our speaking, co-creating reality to the reference points we're talking about that are historical, that create this sense of continuity and commonality. We are always, always interdependent and related to all things. So Zen is, is, you could say, uncompromising in the way that it teaches, the way that it transmits, the way that it, the way we study, the way we sit, our approach to sitting is, um, in some ways it's a very rigorous training because it's so uncompromising. And I would say maybe some of the differences between a, a traditional practice, maybe one that was practiced in China or Japan and now, it, for me is really twofold. One is that I'm practicing largely in a lay context in which people have jobs and partners and families. And so therefore, the way that we practice is, is different as opposed to a highly concentrated monastic engagement. That, that would be one. And then I think that maybe for me, the, the sense that states and stages both have a place. So on the one hand, there's the non-existence of the separate self. And on the other hand, we do, we can create a little space for it without being as quite as I don't think the word hostile is really accurate, but that, you know, that we're all sometimes egocentric or ethnocentric. We can be world-centric and concern ourselves with others, and we can also just have a complete state shift in terms of how we relate to space and time, kind of a cosmic-centric, non-dual reality. So I think I create more space for ego development, possibly, than a traditional. And I also think the culture itself is quite different. You know, I'm not... My experience with Asian culture is really through my experience of these teachings, but I think the emotional temperament and the, the times and the just the way in which Japanese culture structures itself is so different. With all this emphasis on the individual, you know, the Japanese are very much of a collective culture, so that in itself is quite different. So those are. I, I'd be curious to hear your response to that, Roger. How do you see how, your study of Zen? in relationship to traditional study. I think traditional people would consider me to be a little bit of a Mongol, for sure. Well, my Zen phase was significantly shorter than yours, but, <laughs> but I did survive seven years of fairly intense intense practice. But it was pretty traditional practice, and yeah. it, was, it was some decades ago. So I think Zen was still in its transitional phase and one of the things about uh, one of the things about particularly Buddhism as it's migrated from each one culture to another is it's both both transformed the culture and been transformed by it and I was a I think I was in in a Zen at a time when it was the first generation of Western teachers and they were still faithfully kind of hewing to the yes. traditional tone so I think one of the changes that is uh, another change that has happened. Well, there are two other changes that I noticed Buddhism's come to the West that I'm sure you know, you've lived. One, of course, is its feminization, but the other is its uh, engagement with social global issues. 
and that's something you've been on the forefront of and I would love to hear where you are with that now as we face these great great challenges mm-hmm. what's your current thinking about perhaps what, what what do you see as the unique contribution that contemplatively contemplative practitioners can bring bring at this time well there the practically speaking there are two that are kind of front and center in, in my work and in my practice. And the first is the training that I do with mediators and facilitators. And it, it really is, we were saying a few minutes ago that, that a lot of the way in which we think about conflict resolution, social justice right now, there's a tremendous emphasis on, on difference and on the, the tension of difference. I like to point out to my students that wherever there's a difference and there are two, there's bound to be tension, whether it's creative tension or erotic tension or aggression or whatever it is, because there's two, there's naturally tension running between. So when I train facilitators, I'm training them always in the very fundamental, you know, you could say the lesson of Zen, which is sameness and difference. We say in Zen, everything the same, everything different. <laughs> you know, the, 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 the universal in the particular being in relationship to the, to that, which is utterly indivisible and then that which is highly you know there, there's as much distinction in reality there's an infinite distinction so how do we actually occupy that very powerful paradox in relationship to other human beings particularly in the context of human beings who's been you know systematically treated treated poorly by other groups of people I and mean, that that's just hard to reconcile ourselves to that but that's why it's so important this unitive experience because if one can work in such a way that that the unitive, not just as an idea or as you know the, the commonality, but the actual unity of experience in the room when you're working with people, that you can notice when a group comes into oneness, and you can notice when a group is highly individuated and work with that too, and you can balance it and and help people relax in relationship to one another, which is what I teach. You know, so it's really informed by Zen, and then the other one that just is kind of coincidental is that a good number of the people that I train are in one way or another engaged in, in climate issues. So mm-hmm. we spent the entire year last year looking at climate change, but we did it in a highly integral way. We looked at it from the first person, the second person and the third person perspectives, because one of our experiences is that, you know, as soon as we talk climate, everybody just hunkers down into a third person analysis of data and sea rise and glaciers and it's all very scientific and it kind of it leaves out the tremendous emotional impact that that news has on people and it also makes it difficult to maintain one's as Trump Rinpoche used to say one's cheerfulness (laughs) in relationship to that bad news so we worked really hard to again to create a unitive experience Kind of the, you might say the radical first person along with disclosing the impact of this and, and also in our conversations with each other and then really deal with the data because we have people working on sea rise in Canada. We have people doing eco- ecological restoration. We have people who are researching climate like Gail Hachachka was in that course with me and she's doing quite a lot of research on climate change at different stages of development and how people interpret it based on those stages. She's written a big paper on that. Mm -hmm. So I would say conflict resolution and climate are the two places where 
our group has particularly put our attention, both in terms of teaching conflict resolution with this influence of Zen, and then also using the integral map to try to talk and explore climate change from multiple points of view rather than just one. And then people taking that and using it. Gail's actually going to, I guess she's going to back to Norway to work on a climate change project there that she was telling me about recently. So a lot of that's just naturally going on within my particular group of people. Those are issues which are calling people, and particularly mm-hmm. people of, of, uh, you know, of, con- of concern and compassion. Uh, these are issues which draw us near. I was taking a devil's advocate perspective for a moment. You described some very beautiful responses to this one of and tragically many threats we're facing, in this case climate change. Mm-hmm. And you discussed the taking a third person or objective perspective on the data and then the then this the first person and the what emotions does it bring up and second person, how does it touch our relationships? But <clears throat> one could say that Okay, well that's wonderful and and much broader than most people do, but but where's the Zen here? Where's the contemplative? Is that what is the what is your Zen training? All those years of depth exploration, what does that that add? Yeah, I would well, add can can we hold that and you're obviously you know, you just you have a brilliant mind and still be at peace while we confront these hugely existential, devastating issues. Well, I mean, when I said the radical first person, what I mean by that is the, as a group, to be able to sit together fully in the here and now with all the work that we're doing, but in this particular moment, even as we're doing right now, to be able to sit profoundly in the present without references to past and future and to feel utterly appreciative of the preciousness of this moment and even of our predicament, you know, as a very real and you, you can't study Zen without confronting impermanence. Yeah. And, you know, we're faced with impermanence. We're faced with change. We're faced with uncertainty. It's just a feature of this, as Ken says, this composite situation that we're in. And so Zen does have tremendous amount of peace to offer. It's a, it's on a scale that we're not used to, but, but each of us is confronted with our own demise and the, the uncertainty of death and the uncertainty of change and particularly change on large scale. You know, human beings, maybe it, it hasn't been climate change, but Genghis Khan was in the next valley. You know, there's been change and peril and annihilation facing human beings throughout the course of our history. So I think Zen does allow us to come fully into the present. And to be, to realize that, that peace is without past and futures right now. Beautiful. So, two things I, I'm, I'm struck by in what you just said. One is that we tend to, we tend to lose the large picture perspective in so many ways. And one of which is the historical precedent where people have always lived under threat and danger. So it's not new. And, but the other, other thing which struck me as you were talking, well, in some way of all the contemporary traditions, they bring their gifts to bear on exploration and, and hopefully contri- contribution to healing some of the great issues of our time. Perhaps it's Zen's which contribution, which is most subtle because <laughs> I was realizing as you were talking that Zen is so utterly 
you use the word essential, that is it, it sets aside or cut, goes through the concepts and the associations to the raw experience. And so what I appreciate your pointing to is the capacity to really be with the experience of these challenges without adding one's stories and drama and so forth, but just to be with it. And that feels like a living demonstration of Zen's contribution. <laughs> it was so clear and so simple, I was overlooking it as you were saying it. <laughs> uh, thank you. <laughs> the, the thing that tends to come up that Zen provides an antidote to, and it's not that it shouldn't, but people will often when they're in conversation or they're strategizing or working on issues like climate change, that we will forget to be fully in the here and now because we get so busy trying to plan what to do. And so one of the disciplines in our group is to be with everything fully and when the time is right to think about the future and what the plan might be. And there's an extraordinary gift in that practice because what one discovers is to the extent we have we fall into and offer ourselves to the moment. That's what allows the creativity to emerge. And so it's kind of counterintuitive when things so are going to lose my capacity. I can't, won't be able to think about it. I won't be able to figure it out. <laughs> and I might die. I might lose my self sense in the process. <laughs> but what you discover is the, the, to be fully in the present moment is this boundlessly creativity that emerges, which is just wonderful. So, so uh, yes, thank you. <laughs> yeah, and, and Diane, do you feel do you feel you know the years of practice and, and integral practice? In other words, the, the, studying all the stuff that you've learned and and uh, experience with guiding people and relationships and all the stuff. Do you feel when you're when you're teaching? Sometimes it's just like the universe is teaching through you. In other words, you're not having to try real hard. This just seems to be coming through and, and you know, off use word now, but a flow state. And does that in somehow in an active form seem very similar to the deep states that we reach in meditation where we're just present in that moment? Well, we make a little bit of a distinction. It's probably one of the, most fundamental distinctions because we are, we're always aware of when we're creating a, a difference. But, you know, there, there are two in the Chinese words. What are they called? Ideographs for Zen? There are two. Mm-hmm. And the first symbolizes realization or the recognition of, of our oneness, our, our unitive, our primary unitive situation. And then the second one is manifestation. And we say that to encounter the absolute is not yet enlightenment. To, in other words, we can have a deep meditative experience, but there's a, a, a tremendous challenge in learning how to express that and how to offer that into the world. And so the, in, in, in a funny way, realization can be sudden, but how we learn to manifest that always takes time and takes practice. So I think teaching is something that I've, I had a really good teacher. And I think that his way of teaching taught me that there's so much more potential. This is where we get to the big mind, Roger, to actually just invite that 
boundless state of being in the moment and allow oneself to speak from that place. He taught me that, that there was so much that was available that, that I didn't need to worry too much. Yeah. So your, your, your sense of it being a flow state, I think it is like that in the sense that if I'm coming from an, a quite an open, open state of mind and I had a really good teacher and some good training, I can really relax when I teach. Yeah, and you're pointing to the idea that there are really two different different skills here, or capacities, mm-hmm. or yeah. or in Buddhism and and actually in the West, in philosophy, there are two different kinds of wisdom. One is the wisdom that of seeing deeply into the nature of things and mm-hmm. oneself, and that's a profound kind of wisdom. But there's another very, when the West is called practical wisdom, of learning how to allow and and also learn how to yes yeah. manifest that because yeah, it's a right. it's a very unique expression that's mm-hmm. called for from each of us and and one can learn the principles and ideally have a wonderful role model as you did uh but it's still a learning process and just as there are there are endless degrees of or depths or further possibilities of realization there are always further possibilities of Learning how to to bring those gifts to the mm-hmm. world. Yeah. We're all beginners in that sense. Beginners mind is one of <laughs> Zen's most famous books. Yeah. 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 And Trumper Rinpoche always said, "Be yourself. The world will give you feedback." And so that's one of the things well, that's that good. I that's really good. that whenever you're working with a group of people, and I don't teach at scale. You know, there are people that teach thousands of people, and I teach. Groups of 40 or 50 or 60. I mean, when I was working with Ken, sometimes those seminars were bigger than that. So I have an opportunity to interact with people individually. And then I'm really working with much more specifically with their own question and then their own habitual patterns and ways of seeing. And, and I, mm-hmm. it was one of the things that I saw my teacher do brilliantly because he, he had such confidence in Buddha nature. You know, and it, if you couldn't see it, it wasn't that it wasn't there. It's just that you couldn't uh-huh. see it. And so he would, he was always very good at helping people see it. And you could, you could see when they could see, you know, that's what was amazing. Yeah. And, uh, for me personally, uh, we're talking about Kempo Roshi here and, uh, yeah. and I had an experience with him that I've had with no other teacher. It's like almost <laughs> every time we got together, I would have a little Kensho. Kensho. Yeah. And I couldn't figure out what the hell is. How does this happen? I sit down, have a have a beer with this guy, and <laughs> next thing I know, he's talking into this mini awakening. It's like what the? So yeah. anyway, I, I was like, I need to say, I like to hang out with him. <laughs> yeah, even right now, you know, as yeah. we hang out with him now, yeah. he's very good at that. Really, really good. Really, really. I, the first time it happened was literally at a. At an integral con- conference or cocktail like party at the end of the da- end of a long day, <laughs> it's like <laughs> okay, all right. I just like to draw a distinction, which is a little bit of a bet noir for me, and that is the distinction between flow states and some of the experiences we talk about, because mm-hmm. uh, flow states is one of these kind of big words in contemporary mm-hmm. both psychology and the culture. And mm-hmm. it's a contribution at pointing out that yes, we can get into a rhythm or or flow of, ex, of being with experience, particularly experiences which really call on all our skills and consume our attention and 
and then we just kind of can really sometimes operate at very high capacity in those ways. But it's gotten to be such a broad category, and I think it's very different from the contemplative state and activity in the world. And with flow, the definition of a flow, it's, it's an immersive state. It's one in which we kind of lose our lose awareness of the environment in ourselves in an activity and lose track of time and just just doing the activity but in a kind of mindless way. A very a very satisfying and effective, but still a lovely mindless way, because we have lost contact with with the environment. But but I think the states you're pointing to and the contemplatives will point to are ones with in which there's a kind of flow in that things happen or easily, spontaneously and effectively. Yet there's a very much a lot of awareness brought to 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 the whole moment and process. So I think there's an important distinction to be made there. Yeah, well let's let's look at that for a minute. So the the flow states have some things in common, like you were already saying, like there's a sense of timelessness, of effortlessness. So thing I think that's where the word flow comes from, that there's not one doesn't have to make an effort. And then then and generally speaking there's there's egolessness, but there's also, as you were saying, one of the differences between certainly meditation and flow is that flow is always engaged in an activity of some sort. And so you could think of flow in athletics or mathematics or, I mean, I, I've heard the story to get to your point, Roger, that when Einstein was really deeply immersed in some, you know, theory that mathematical theory he was working on, that sometimes he would pee his pants while he was working. Did you guys ever hear that? I haven't heard that story now. Wouldn't surprise anyway, me. He would but... just sit through it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I, think yeah, in... I can't stop this. I'm just going to have to stay here again. Yeah. I think in the Zen world, you'd, you'd probably be admonished if you sat on your cushion and, you know, let go at that level. That isn't what we're looking for, you know. So that, that sense of being connected to the environment is really, really important. But looking into the the nature of things and to see that and, and maybe in, in John's case, the question of teaching is that there is a quality that one can trust kind of what's coming up. And is, but one does need to stay connected to the environment. One needs to stay connected to the feedback. One of the things that one has to teach young teachers is to stay very awake to the impact of what you're doing on the group. You know, if what you're doing is putting the group to sleep, you you know you might want to notice that <laughs> you know right. people are nodding off. So if the way that you're communicating or questioning or delivering, people are are coming more into presence. That's good feedback. You want to pay attention to that. So I think it is different in that way. But the point that you were trying to make that there can be this kind of trust and relaxation that happens with teaching from years of training, and also maybe because it's not being filtered through the ego quite so much. I was going to ask you whether interior meditation practice makes us more likely to have more flow states in what we are called to do in the world. Now, if you're a teacher and you medit- do your however much you do a day or however you do that, do you feel that that prepares you to get into the states where you can kind of get out of the way when you're teaching or I writing? Think, I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to have to, to, defer a little bit to Roger here because the truth is I I actually don't I haven't studied flow states honestly what I would say in response to your question is what it does do is it 
it allows me to be to be present to whatever comes up. So if it's flow, fantastic. If it's obstacles, how do I work with them? If it's if it's anger and fatigue in myself or in others, how do I encounter that and deal with that? So I think that the what I can say affirmatively is that meditation always teaches us if <laughs> nothing will teach you how to how to be present to whatever is arising like sitting still on your cushion and being present to whatever's arising. <laughs> that is just far and away the best training for being present to whatever comes up. Stay tuned for the next episode with Diane Hamilton, where she dives deeper into specific practices for working with grief, forgiveness, and for the challenging aspects of male-female relationships. Today's episode was brought to you by iWake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.